Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. And it's my pleasure to welcome all of you here to the Pratt Library. This afternoon, we have a wonderful speaker, Dr. Robert Katilali, who is an associate professor in the Department of Humanities and Media at Coppin State University in Baltimore, where he teaches African American and African American literature. He is a music critic historian who was a recipient of the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award and has been published in Downbeat USA Today, the Rocky Mountain News, New Orleans Times, Picayune, New York Newsday, Wavelength, Newsweek, and Sing Out. He has explored the subject of African American music ever since earning his doctoral degree from the State University of New York in American literature with an emphasis on African American literature. His doctoral dissertation discussed how African American writers represent music in their writing and black music was, has never been far away from his pursuits. He spent 10 years as a freelance journalist covering African-derived music, including everything from jazz, blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, gospel and Caribbean music. He's traveled to many of the, all the hot spots for African-American music. He is also author of the Music in African-American Fiction and the producer and annotator of the Smithsonian Folkways Double Compact Disc, Every Tone a Testimony, an African-American Oral History. He also is the producer and annotator of the Compact Disc, which accompanies uh, Call and Response, the Riverside Anthology of the African-American Literary Tradition. He recently completed a critical study on the representation of music in post-black arts fiction. And today, Dr. Katilali will discuss his latest work, Classic Sounds of New Orleans. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Katilali to the Pratt Library. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the African American History Month at the Poe Room in the Enoch Pratt Library. And it's also Mardi Gras season in New Orleans right now. I was in New Orleans last week, and everything is in full swing. Fat Tuesday is on um, March 8th this year. It's one of the latest Mardi Gras in a long time. So I'm going to start with a piece of music since this is about the music. Um, and this is a. a the uh, Eureka Brass Band, just a little while to stay here. From street parades to nightclubs, from church houses to dance halls, music's been an essential part to the unique culture of New Orleans. The sounds that have emanated from the Crescent City have played a central role in the evolution of American music. During the first half of the 19th century, the colonial city was the locus for the melding of diverse musical styles, the improvised polyrhythmic call-and-response drum performances, 
that enslaved Africans were permitted to hold on Sunday afternoons in Congo Square, and the symphony orchestras and opera houses that, although segregated, were open to whites, Creoles, and enslaved Africans. Some of the most creative and influential musicians of the 20th century emerged from the inimitable expressive traditions that have thrived in New Orleans, including such legendary figures as Buddy Bolden, Jelly Roll Morton, Louis Armstrong, Mahalia Jackson, Sidney Boucher, Antoine Fats Domino, Dave Bartholomew, Professor Long, and Professor Longhair. Despite the devastating effects of the flood that resulted from Hurricane Katrina and the failure of the levees in 2005, at the start of the 21st century, New Orleans musicians such as the Marsalis family, the Neville brothers, Irma Thomas, Alan Toussaint, Dr. John, who is going to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in a couple of weeks, Bo Dallas, Monk Boudreau, the Dirty Dozen, and younger musicians like Trombone Shorty, Shannon Powell, Kermit Ruffins, and Leroy Jones keep the city's musical heritage distinctive and thriving. Given the role as a source point for American music, it is not surprising that the Smithsonian Folkways catalog is a rich repository of the classic sounds of New Orleans. Um, Folkways records began in, in 1948, and they have over 2,000 recordings in their catalog. Um, at the end of the, I think the early 80s, the, when the founder, Moses Ash, passed away, uh, the Smithsonian acquired the um, Folkways catalog. Uh, and uh, this project developed um, through my work in the archive at Folkways. Um, I did the uh, Every Tone of Testimony CD uh, in 2000, and then um, in, a few years later I did the Paul Robeson uh, independent recordings. Um, more recently I did the uh, Frederick Douglass oratory recorded by Ozzie Davis in the 1970s. All this material was reissued on CD. So I was very familiar with the Folkways catalog, and uh, as a long-time devotee of New Orleans music, I was aware there was a, quite a body of New Orleans music in, in that catalog. And uh, initially I had um, uh, come up with the idea of doing a New Orleans CD for Folkways. And um, it's interesting, uh, initially, uh, if you, in the back there's a couple of the other CDs I produced, which are part of the African-American Legacy series, which is a series that represents the new um, Smithsonian African-American Museum that they're currently funding, and it's going to be built on the mall in D.C. You know, sometime in the next 10 years, I would guess. Um, and so initially I had proposed uh, the New Orleans CD for the African-American Legacy series, and um, you know, the way bureaucracies work, I I'm not quite sure how they work, but coming from the outside, work, trying to work in, eventually the... Um, CD was changed to the Smithsonian's classic series, which is basically um, samplers of different genres of music that they have in the, in the collection. They have blues, bluegrass music, gospel music, railroad songs, songs about money. Um, and so they decided this was supposed to be a New Orleans collection. And so it's interesting when, uh, when, they, when they decided to do the packaging at the end when the CD was done, uh, I had found this photo um, of Sam Morgan's jazz band, uh, in the archives at Folkways, and they wanted to use it for the cover, and they did it in a similar scheme to the, to the one that came out with the purple and gold, which is, you know, picking up on the purple, gold, and green, which are the Mardi Gras colors. And um, I, I didn't like that. I mean, it made a really nice album cover, but to me, um, I, from when I first started this project, I wanted this picture on the cover, and 
I, I like this, and I was told that you know you can't put pictures on the cover where the central figure has their back to the camera, and you know all those kind of things. And I said, you know, this picture to me captures what the CD does because it really gives you, particularly the the bulk of the material on the CD was recorded in the 1950s when New Orleans was segregated, when the the musical styles that were being performed in New Orleans were pretty much insulated within the city. A lot of people didn't know about, outside New Orleans didn't know about these traditions. Um, so I like this photo in particular because it, um, it, it's really an insider view. The, the band is up on what they call in New Orleans the banquet, which is the sidewalk, um, and they're mixed in with the, the crowd, which will eventually become the, the second line, um, which follows the brass band in the parades. Um, and then, of course, it's got the, the classic shotgun houses in the background. And I also love the little kids in the front because that New Orleans has, has a living musical tradition. So I actually won the argument based on, on, on those ideas. And so that eventually became the cover of the, uh, of the CD. When I had to reconceive the CD, though, thinking of it as an African-American legacy CD to the classic CD, which is really about folkways. I had to come up with an angle into the material that would link New Orleans uh, to folkways. And really that became pretty obvious when I uh, you know, took a look at, at the recordings that I was working with and noticed that uh, both Frederick Ramsey and Samuel, Samuel Charters were very crucial figures in the shaping of the folkways catalog. And they both spent... Um, considerable amount of time in New Orleans, and New Orleans influenced their, their, uh, their life work. Uh, Ramsey is very crucial to the Folkways catalog. One of the things that Ramsey did that's just a you know, really kind of monumental work is these recording sessions with the uh, blues singer and songster Leadbelly. Um, towards the end of his life, Ramsey uh, became associated with Leadbelly when he was living in New York, and uh, it's like a four CD set, so you can you know imagine how many reels of tape that took to um, get four CDs of releasable material. And uh, recorded Lead Belly either in Ramsey's own apartment in New York or at Lead Belly and his wife's apartment in New York. So uh, you know Ramsey has that connection to um, to New Orleans. Uh, Ramsey was also very influential in that he published with Charles Edward Smith. Uh, one of the first uh, books on jazz. Uh, together, these two jazz enthusiasts put together one of the first serious scholarly works of music called The Jazzmen, which was published in 1939. The book helped to establish a focus on the primacy of New Orleans, and particularly the city's African-American musicians in the origins of jazz. Ramsey was working as a jazz columnist in the years after World War II, and in 1946, Moses Ash, the owner of Folkways, uh, asked him to start write liner notes and help him with his new disc label, which eventually became Folkways. Uh, the association lasted for four decades, and Ramsey worked on many projects with Ash, uh, succession of la labels, and starting, including the Lead Belly. To even, they even did a really funny, to me it's funny, they um, got a job for the Museum of Natural History, too. They were having an exhibit on the rainforest, and um, so they created this kind of faux rainforest soundtrack in Ramsey's uh, bathroom, um, splattering water off the shower curtain and things like that. Um, uh, and that was American Museum of Natural History. And then uh, one of their first projects together uh, was the, um, something I'll come to later, the Baby Dodds recording. 
Ramsey also uh, issued a history of jazz series on folkways. These, you know, this was at a time where most recorded music was on 78 RPM uh, uh, recordings of one song per side of a disc. Um, you know, you know, basically the music industry is things are pretty disposable in the music industry. So a lot of of these early jazz and blues recordings had gone unreleased for a long time. Uh, And so Ramsey, from his personal collection, put this series together for Folkways. One of the first reissues, of course, we see today, um, you know, record companies, you know, make a lot of money off their reissue series, you know, whatever, anthologies of different types of music. Um, But this is really one of the first reissue series. And this is what, this volume that Ramsey did on New Orleans Uh, This is what he said about um, the the history of New Orleans music. One music publisher has recounted that in the early 20s, an official at the Victor Talking Machine Company was shocked at the suggestion they undertake a catalog of Negro jazz. Nevertheless, recording of a sort got underway in 1921. Smaller companies were willing to experiment, and it's from this hesitant releases that it's possible to piece together a fairly representative selection of New Orleans music. None of it is, quote, typical, for if there's anything typical of New Orleans jazz is that it is atypical. Instead, there are many individuals capable of producing many different kinds, interesting kinds of music. Uh, This is the Baby Dodds recording, and what they did was they took, uh, Baby Dodds was one of the the fathers of modern drumming. Um, He performed with so many different musicians, Louis Armstrong, Jelly Roll Morton, King Oliver, uh, Bunk Johnson. Um, and so what Ramsey and Ash actually did is they sat Baby Dodds down in the studio and had him demonstrate all the different kinds of techniques of jazz drumming and also talk about the history of, of jazz drumming, particularly in New Orleans. So I'll play a little bit of, uh, of one of the tracks from Baby Dodds here. You know, that's really one of the roots of modern jazz drumming. You can hear the way it starts. It has that parade, New Orleans parade thing going on. And so, you know, this is one of the projects that Ramsey worked on. Ramsey's huge project that he began in 1954 was he headed south to Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, funded by the Guggenheim Foundation to undertake field research. And he had, you know, he had been interested in discovering the roots of jazz. And I think the, the association with Lead Belly was a big influence um, and he started to look for rural African-American music as a kind of source point that migrated to the cities that eventually became the foundation of jazz. So, you know, he gets this grant from the Guggenheim Foundation, and, you know, I, see, I can't remember what model car it is. It's one of those big old cars from the 50s, and, you know, he put the, this big reel-to-reel tape recorder in the trunk, and he got in it with his wife and son, and, um, or wife and daughter, and drove through the South, and eventually produced... Um, Ten albums for Folkways, and the series is called Music from the South, and also an accompanying book of his photographs uh, called Been Here and Gone that had an, had an essay in it. Um, and so uh, let, me, let me play a couple of the little kind of odd things that Ramsey um, found. This is a, a musician in uh, track three on the CD, Freddie L. Small. And he was a jazz musician who was, Ramsey found him, 
kind of homeless living on the street playing harmonica for, um, for spare change. Um, so this is a street recording. If you're familiar with jazz, you may recognize that's the Tiger Rag, which millions of people recorded over the, over the years. But this guy, kind of a memory of his past life playing on the streets. The next piece I really love, um, uh, and I kind of, it's just kind of a coincidence that I noticed that um, I read a book about two years ago called Songs from My Father's, a New Orleans story in black and white written by a man named Tom Sancton. And uh, Sancton uh, was a young man at the end of the 50s, early 60s, and um, his father was friends with Ramsey, and uh, they were all kind of instrumental in the formation of Preservation Hall. Uh, if you've been to New Orleans and been to the French Quarter, you know, it's one of the main um, tourist stops in the French Quarter, and just, a, you know, just a, to me, like a landmark or, or a kind of mecca for American music. Uh, but Ramsey came to uh, Sancton's house one day, um, and his father knew a woman that traveled, walk, uh, African-American woman that walked through the uptown neighborhood in New Orleans, and she sold her blackberries by singing a blackberry song. And I remember reading in uh, Sancton's book that he, when he was a little boy, he remembered this man came to his father's house with a tape recorder, and that this lady that he knew in the neighborhood that came by, and they brought her in the house, um, and Ramsey recorded this Dora Blige in singing her Blackberry song. Let me play it, and then I'll read you the quote. Sancton, who, uh, you know, he started to take lessons as a young kid, like 10, 12 years old, from George Lewis, who was one of the main traditional clarinet players in New Orleans at Preservation Hall. And he was one of the first uh, young white men that was taken in by these older black musicians. He was one of the first uh, white musicians to parade with the Olympia Brass Band. Um, And he went all through his high school career um, kind of living a double life where, you know, he's, he lived uptown New Orleans, which in the primarily white New Orleans, and, you know, went to high school and went to, you know, dances at school where they had the Beatles and the Rolling Stones playing on the, at the dances at the gym. Um, and then on the weekends, he would go to the French Quarter and he would perform traditional jazz with these older black men and became very close with them. And then eventually, I believe he got a it was either a scholarship to either Harvard or Yale to, to study journalism. And he left New Orleans. He went on to become uh, the Paris uh, bureau chief for Time magazine. And then after Hurricane Katrina, um, he wrote this book uh, and then decided to go back to New Orleans, where he's, matter of fact, he was performing at Preservation Hall last Sunday night. And um, I hadn't been to New Orleans during Mardi Gras season in a long time, so when I Last time I was there was August, which is kind of a slow period in New Orleans, so you could walk right into Preservation Hall. The line was so long, it was you know, down about a block and a half to see him. But this is what he wrote about Dora Blygen, remembering that day when uh, Frederick Ramsey came to record at, at his father's house. Even apart from the music, Dora's vi- visit was a special event. 
Louisiana was segregated in those days, and it was against the law for blacks and whites to be under the same roof, except if the blacks were working for the whites. I guess Dora, like cooks, maids, nannies, handyman, qualified as hired help. And so that particular uh, performance that day is preserved in uh, the Folkways, Folkways recordings. Uh, one of the things that Ramsey found out when he got to New Orleans was that Samuel Charters was already there, along with uh, Wyckoff and Ashforth that I'll talk about in a few minutes. And so he didn't want to duplicate what other people were doing. And so um, he had come through Alabama and Mississippi, and when he got to New Orleans, uh, he decided, because other people were recording traditional jazz, to focus on the sacred music in the city. Play a track here. This is Choir of the Pilgrim Baptist Church. for time's sake, but uh, I really wanted to have the sacred music on the CD and not just a strictly jazz CD, or most people think of New Orleans as a, as a, as a jazz center, because the sacred music is so um, integral to the New Orleans music scene, and there is that, like Ramsey said, there is that ability of New Orleans musicians to transcend genres, so that you'll see musicians, I remember the, the first year I went to New Orleans to the Jazz and Heritage Festival in 1979, and um, I think over a three-day weekend, I saw the, one of the Neville brothers, Charles Neville, playing saxophone in about you know 14 different types of settings at the fairgrounds and different clubs. He was playing rhythm and blues and jazz poetry and bebop and avant-garde jazz, and, and and you know someone like Aaron Neville from the Neville brothers has a new gospel CD, but he's also known for his rock and roll and R&B material. So. And so many of the jazz musicians that um, emerged in New Orleans came through, you know, groups like this, this choir and, and this church group. As a matter of fact, the woman that's playing piano on that track, um, Sister Annie Pavago, uh, husband is uh, Alcide Slowdrag Pavago, who was the bass player at Preservation School. So that, that connection between, although sometimes when you read about African-American music, they talk about a divide between um, the sacred and the secular um, there really is so much interaction between the two um, when it comes down to the actual musicians playing the music. The other, so, you know, that kind of looked a little bit at some of the things that Ramsey did in New Orleans. As I said, Ramsey, um, when he got to New Orleans, met up with Samuel B. Charters, and Charters actually is more known for his work with blues than with jazz. Um, and during the 1960s, Charters... Uh, uh, wrote a book, uh, well, it came out in 1959, his book, uh, The Country Blues, and then an accompanying uh, anthology for folkways called The Country Blues uh, is really where he made his name. But Charters was in New Orleans when Ramsey got there, and Ramsey is the one who called back to, to uh, New York to Moses Ash and said, 
There's this guy, Sam Charters, down here that's doing great work. You need to connect. And that's how Charters comes part of um, the New Orleans scene. That was Charters' book that he wrote in 1959, the, one, the pink one, uh, which really um, is kind of a catalog of the African-American musicians in the city. And then the trumpet uh, around the corner is his most recent book, which came out about a year ago. Charter's first project in uh, New Orleans was kind of a, 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 a tradition that's been somewhat lost. Uh, there was a string band tradition in New Orleans uh, that goes all the way back to the 19th century. In fact, probably at the turn of the century in the early decades of the 20th century, String band music, both white and black, was probably as popular as brass jazz band music. Um, people playing violins, mandolins, guitars, things like that. And so um, Chartist came up with uh, one of the last of those existing string bands, the six and seven, eight string band. Um, and you can see the collaboration. Ramsey actually wrote part of the liner notes for Chartist. So it's a famous uh, 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 New Orleans jazz piece. Most people know it obviously by someone playing a clarinet, but here we have a um, string band playing it. If you know clarinet marmalade, you can see they're really following the horn lines that the different bre the horns and clarinet of brass might play in a, in a jazz ensemble. This was Charter's series that came out in the late 50s called The Music of New Orleans, and it's really a landmark uh, piece of recording. Um, let me just play you. This is kind of interesting to me that um, this is where the, 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 the folklorist, historian, producer changes hats, and it's actually Charter's playing piano with the great... Uh, Punch Miller. That's the classic bucket's got a hole in it. Um, and, of course, the next line is, so I can't get no beer. Um, because at the turn of the century and early part of the century, there were no bottled or cans of beer. You would send somebody down to the saloon with a bucket, and they would fill it up from the tap and, and bring it back home again. And that piece is, you know, classic New Orleans repertoire. It's, you know, part of what we have from the oral tradition about the great legendary Buddy Bolden. That was part of his repertoire. Of course, we don't have any recordings of Buddy Bolden. Uh, I'm not sure how many, how, how many of you are familiar with the, the phenomenon of the Mardi Gras Indian tribes. To me, it's one of the most fascinating aspects of New Orleans. Um, it's been a passion with me since, I, like I said, I went to New Orleans in 1979 for the first time. And uh, whenever I have the opportunity, which is rare, uh, because the Indians only do their thing on Mardi Gras Day and also on St. Joseph's Day. Um, and then, of course, more recently, they, they've come out for the jazz festival. Uh, but those are really the only opportunities you get to see the Mardi Gras Indians. 
um, the Indian and, and charters somehow managed to record the Indians. To me, I, I haven't been able to find any earlier recordings of the Mardi Gras Indians. I know that in um, the 40s when Alan Lomax interviewed Jelly Roll Morton for the Library of Congress, uh, Jelly Roll talked about the Indians and played an example of an Indian song on that, if you know that Library of Congress, at the 10 CD set. Um, he played some of the Indian music. And then in the, I think in the late 40s, the great guitar player from New Orleans, Danny Barker, recorded a couple Indian songs. But as far as I can tell, this, this recording on, in, in from charters from his Music of New Orleans is the first commercial recording of Mardi Gras Indians. And just briefly, the Mardi Gras Indians are African-American men um, that have tribes, or they call them more likely gangs. I don't know if anybody's seen the recent HBO uh, Treme series, but they do focus on, which tells you how far the Indians have come in terms of popular culture, that they're actually on HBO now. But somewhere around the end of the 19th century, um, black men started to mask as in Native American motifs costumes. Um, the costumes are very elaborate, um, even way more elaborate than these days. They're almost like 3D sculptures now. They're gigantic. Um, they're much more, even though the imagery is Native American, they're much more African in origin. Um, they connect to a lot of the carnival uh, costumes that you would see throughout the Caribbean and or West Africa. Uh, they participate in a kind of African-based call and response chanting um, and they have this kind of polyrhythmic African rhythm going on. That's a classic kind of rhythm that's had influence on so many New Orleans artists. I mentioned Jelly Roll Morton, the, the Neville Brothers, Dr. John, uh, <clears throat> and, you know, other contemporary musicians borrow from the Indian music. So this is a piece that, that this is the Charters piece, and it begins with, uh, the Indian, one of the famous Indian songs is Big Chief's Got a Golden Crown. And what they do is they have these different tribes, the Wild Magnolias, the Wild Chapatulas, the Creole Wild West, um, the Yellow, yellow Pocahontas. Um, and they have a, a, a hierarchy of um, the chief, of course, the big chief. Um, and then they have the flag boy who carries their standard. And then they have the spy boy who goes out. Um, down this in the, and this is an alternative Mardi Gras. It does not take place with the big floats coming up St. Charles. Um, it's in the black neighborhoods um, for the black community. Um, and they, uh, then they have the wild man, um, and they, the spy boy will go out, and they have a kind of route that they follow, and then he'll signal the flag boy that uh, the other tribe is coming. Then they have these kind of ritualized standoffs with this, hey, Pacue, you know, if you don't want to play, get out the way. I'm the big chief. And they compete now for who's the prettiest Indian. Uh, whereas in the 40s and 50s, they actually had, you know, rough and tumble physical encounters, guns, hatchets, things like that. Uh, but there was a chief that died a few years ago, Tootie Montana, um, that really was instrumental in uh, getting the violence out of it. Um, and if you, again, the, if, you, if you watch that Treme series on HBO, they're pretty accurate in how they're depicting uh, the Indians uh, um, and their struggles to try to deal with the authorities and things like that. So this is, the, this is one of the chiefs um, explaining what, he, what they mean when they chant and say, Big Chief's got a golden crown, Big Chief wears the red, white, and blue. Now take a tribe that dressed green, white, and blue. Now, a tribe that dressed in red, white, and blue 
it's supposed to have the golden band. It's supposed to be the best. Because as the song goes, the red, white, and blue got the gold. Yeah, I want some. I don't want you to When they meet anybody, nobody can get mine away. Because the red, white, and blue is supposed to hold the golden band. Yeah. Any tribe that falls out of red, white, and blue, they're supposed to hold the golden band. It's supposed to be the best. Huh? It's just a symbol, you understand? An uh, explanation. It's not really a band, you understand? Mm -hmm. But it just knows from generation to generation that the red, you white, and blue was always the best. Oh, yeah, to a park away, red, white, blue got the golden band. Oh, yeah, to a park away, red, white, blue got the golden band. Oh, they coming in, they're coming in, and nobody running. Red, white, blue got the golden band. Oh well, I'm from the seven ward and I'm having my fun. Three white, two got the golden band. Oh well, I meet the people on the Mardi Gras day. Three white, two got the golden band. Well, I don't give a damn what the police say. Three white, two got the golden band. Oh the golden band, oh the golden band. Three white, two got the golden band. Oh the golden band, oh the golden band. Cut them off, but um, and, you know the suits that they wear are unbelievable sequins and and um, beadwork, incredibly detailed beadwork, often depicting uh, you know Plains Indians uh, imagery, uh, ostrich feathers. Um, it's just uh, unbelievable. And uh, you know, over say over the last twenty years, the, there's also been tribes that have taken it more in a kind of Afrocentric direction. Um, and, and really, at this, you know, the actually now. Uh, this, We'll see how it plays out, this Mardi Gras and Jazz Festival. Um, you know, the, the, they're so, the colors and the imagery is so amazing. And I, you know, I, I have my own pictures of them. But, you know, the Indians have felt like they're being exploited because people take these pictures and they frame them, they blow them up, they make calendars and things like that. So they got this lawyer this year from Tulane that is copywriting the suits. Um, and they are saying that if anybody, they don't mind people taking pictures of the suits but if anybody is going to make a commercial enterprise out of it, they want a cut of the action. So very, very interesting phenomenon. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very ritualized in that it, it, it allowed, well, first of all, blacks were not allowed to participate in Mardi Gras for a long time. So some people talk about the masking as Native Americans as a, as a kind of trickster strategy, a subterfuge to be able to be part of Mardi Gras. There's also this whole kind of ritualized hierarchy that allows somebody that might be working in a, you know, a very drudging kind of physical labor job that within the realm of his tribe, you know, he is the big chief or he is the second chief or whatever like that. It's really an amazing phenomenon. So, you know, I was really, really amazed to be able to, to put this track on the, um, on the compilation because it's so crucial to New Orleans music. And again, when I talked at the beginning about insider culture, really nobody knew about the Mardi Gras Indians until you know, roughly the mid-'70s. Then they started to do commercial recordings of the Wild Magnolias and then the Neville Brothers with the Wild Chapatulas did albums in the 70s. That really got the ball rolling. And now you can see them at jazz festivals around the world sometimes, but it's still a New Orleans type of thing. Charters also made some of the first commercial recordings of working brass bands. Um, that brass band tradition goes back, you know, really all the way back into the 19th century. Um, 
After the Civil War, there were lots of brass instruments around from military marching bands. Uh, African Americans that were newly emancipated got a hold of these instruments and brought their African uh, approach to these European instruments. And, you know, you can hear the way they take that, you know, parade beat, that mpa mpa, and they do that hip thing with it with the uh, African rhythms that just makes it, makes you just want to, as, you know, the, in New Orleans, the phenomenon is when the brass, goes, brass band goes down the street, people join in behind them improvising dances. It's called the second line. And uh, uh, as the, the R&B singer uh, Irma Thomas says, uh, put your hankies in the air and your backfield in motion um, and follow the brass band. So let me see if I can get a little brass band music on here. Oh, yeah. Let me play a little bit of this, um, just two short pieces. Um, the famous, I guess one of the most indelible images of New Orleans music is the, the New Orleans funeral, um, where the brass band plays a dirge on the way to the cemetery, and then when they uh, uh, put the body in the mausoleum, uh, they, what they call cutting the body loose, um, they have this celebratory second line back somewhere to have a party. So and, uh, this is the, the dirge, and then I'll play you the, 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 the up-tempo version. Same song. If, if you've never experienced a, a second line parade, there's nothing like it in the world. You just get caught up, and when even me, that just like so rhythmically challenged. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you just can't help but but be, just get caught up in the spirit. And you know, they have people. You know, they're going across the tops of the parked cars. They're up on tops of the shotgun houses. Um, you know, and with umbrellas and handkerchiefs and and down on the ground and doing flips and things like this, really amazing experience. And, you know, it's essentially um, an African-based expression um, that you have uh, what are called these social aid and pleasure clubs in New Orleans that were, you know, independent black groups that were formed, um, you know, African-Americans being excluded from, you know, traditional uh, institutions in society. You join the social aid and pleasure club, and they would make sure that when you died, uh, you got the proper burial, and they would have brass bands that were attached to different social aid and pleasure clubs. And so this is how the music evolves and eventually, um, you know, makes its way from the streets, which, you know, a lot of my, the CD, I, 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 the, the sequencing of the track, I try to take it from, 
you know, the streets into the church and then into the, the jazz bands and then the, the, the blues artists that, that um, emerged in New Orleans. Um, next slide. Yeah, many of these, these people that were recorded by Charters and Ramsey and, and these other people, uh, well, the, next, the other two guys, Alden Ashforth and David Wyckoff, that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Many of these musicians had, had really kind of drifted into obscurity, and um, eventually they became associated with Preservation Hall, which, as I mentioned it earlier, and I think it's just a great landmark of American music. And, of course, you know, the Preservation Hall jazz band goes on to, has been going on tour since the 60s. Um, you can see them probably at least once a year at the Meyerhoff, um, which tells you how far the music has come in terms of from the streets of New Orleans. Um, so let me play a little bit. I love Billy and Dee Dee Pierce. Um. about these groups in, in the original Folkways notes as dance hall bands, and they were playing for local dances in the African-American neighborhoods in New Orleans. And, you know, they, the, it really shows you the evolution of jazz from the brass band that's marching on the street to a, to a jazz hall or dance hall because of the addition of things like a piano um, that, you know, again, talks to the racial history of the city that we had um, prior to the Civil War, you had a free people of color in New Orleans. We have people of African descent that were not slaves. Some of them even owned slaves. Um, and, and a kind of a third caste, if you will, in the city. And then after the Civil War, ironically, after emancipation, uh, the, the backlash against uh, Reconstruction, uh, the black codes that get uh, enforced, forced the Creoles out of downtown, which would be the French Quarter area, into Uptown, which, of course, you know, figures in New Orleans, you're going south to go uptown. Um, but that, in the bottom of the crescent, uh, uh, and so it, it brings those, 
European educated Creoles into contact with the darker African Americans that had come, that had been doing labor, that had been slaves, that are coming from the plantations in the Delta, um, and brings together that European trained uh, musicians of the Creoles with the with the folks that are playing the blues, that are playing the spirituals, that have that you know tie to African American oral tradition, and so that that kind of really is that that law that forces the Creoles out of downtown really has a big impact on the emergence, emergence of jazz. Uh, I really love when I found these two guys that did work for Folkways, and they're both still alive. Um, I spoke with Ashforth uh, last summer, right before I went down to New Orleans to the Satchmo Fest, and I just managed to, uh, I was at a second line parade last weekend, and somebody said, oh, you got to meet this lady. Um, and he brought me over, and he said, this is uh, Geraldine Wyckoff. She's the second cousin of David Wyckoff. Uh, and so she just emailed me his, his information so I can get him. But these two guys had a really interesting story. Um, they were in um, New England prep schools in the late 40s, early 50s. And they started listening to New Orleans jazz on record. And they ran away from home, uh, these two young high school kids. Um, and they went to New Orleans to uh, try to find, motivated by Bunk Johnson and... Uh, were tracked down by their parents who said, um, all right, we'll, we'll let you take music lessons, we'll buy you a really good tape recorder, but you've got to come back to school. Um, so they went back north, they finished high school, they enrolled, I think, in Harvard. Uh, and by the middle of the first year, they were back in New Orleans again, um, recording these guys. And uh, this is, a, it's, this is a, I mentioned the, the Sancton book, which is a really good book, the uh, uh, song of my father's, but this is also a really interesting book on New Orleans jazz history. Uh, Bruce Rayburn is the curator at the Tulane Jazz Archive. He's got a book called New Orleans Style and the Writing of American Jazz History. Uh, and this comes from, from Rayburn's book. He says uh, that the, 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 the two young kids, like high, you know, college students, 18, 19 years old, were arrested um, because they were in the same facility recording African-American musicians. They were breaking the segregation laws. Um, uh, so this is what Rayburn says. Explaining that they were Harvard students conducting research on New Orleans jazz was not enough to pacify the judge, but $20 on loan from jazz enthusiast Dick Allen sufficed to free them. With the promise of returning to college if his father would buy him a tape recorder, Ashforth assembled the resources necessary to achieve his first goals. And so they, they recorded, these young guys, you know, 19, 18, 19 years old, recorded a lot of this music that showed up on, eventually on Folkways Records. Uh, these were all from Ashforth and, uh, and, and Wyckoff. And, and for many of these guys, they had never heard themselves on re recording before. You know, they had been playing live, and so you could see, really, uh, when I talked to Ashforth last summer, he said, it's probably one of the scenes he's talking about, he said, yeah, I made the mistake, uh, we made the mistake of buying uh, whiskey for the refreshment where we probably should have bought beer for these guys because they, you know, were half in the bag before they got the, the, the recordings done, and they had a party, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to just do a little bit more, and then I'm going to leave time for you to um, ask questions or request tracks off the the uh, CD. Uh, Ashforth and Wyckoff went on. Ashforth became a professor of music at UCLA, and Wyckoff is a psychiatrist in New York City, but they reunited in 1980 to record the Doc Paul and Marching Band. Uh, Doc has passed away since then. 
uh, but five of it in that parade scene there, that's five of his sons playing with him there. And um, I was second line in with the Paulin brothers last Saturday night as we went from, uh, you know, some some uh, little watering hole to where the uh, crew de vous parade was assembling on, on Saturday night. So that, you know, that tradition is still alive. Talk about the blues in New Orleans. You know, I've, uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with James Brown's Night Train, Don't Forget New Orleans, the home of the blues. And, you know, that line, it's, you know, blues really isn't that associated with New Orleans, uh, but it does have a very interesting blues tradition. And I think that, you know, we talk about the Mississippi Delta as being the birthplace of the blues, but I think people might refer to New Orleans as the home of the blues because it's welcome there so much, whether it's the older musicians at Preservation Hall playing or a guy like uh, Snooks Eaglin, who, um, again, my first... Uh, trip to New Orleans, I, uh, one of the f- people that I was looking for when I went in 1979 was Snooks Eaglin, and you know, he went on to have a tremendous career, but just talk about the versatility of New Orleans, Snooks was, was recording R&B with a band, you know, electric guitar, bass, piano, horn section with Alan Toussaint on piano in the, in the late 50s, but when Harry Oster, another one of these folkways researchers, found him in New Orleans in, uh, in, 19, in the late 1950s, um, Snooks was glad to put down his electric guitar and pick up an acoustic and become a folk musician, um, whatever it took for him to get, get another gig. But really, this piece I'm going to play is really amazing. If you know the, it's another New Orleans standard called High Society. It's, it's you know, been done by a zillion New Orleans bands that has these really intricate jazz parts. And this is Snooks playing it on acoustic guitar, which just blows my mind. Yeah, I, I don't know if you know any of the, the uh, brass band recordings of, of High Society, but he's playing all the different little horn lines and interactions of the horn players with his little finger-picking style. Uh, another uh, bluesman from New Orleans that also is part of the Folkways catalog is the legendary uh, Lonnie Johnson. Uh, Johnson is known for playing with Louis Armstrong in the uh, Hot Fives and Hot Sevens. Uh, he played with Duke Ellington. He did a historic series of uh, guitar, jazz guitar duets with the uh, white guitarist Eddie Lang. He accompanied uh, uh, Victoria Spivey, the classic blues singer. And then he also was known as a, as a country blues artist himself in the uh, 1920s and 1930s. Had a lot of hits. Um, actually, all the way up into the 40s, he was still having R&B hits, or at the time they were called race record hits um, for African-American audiences primarily. Um, but he also enjoyed a uh, revival in the 1960s with the blues revival uh, and uh, eventually wound up in uh, 1967 recording with Moses Ash. Uh, another musician from the 60s blues revival, champion Jack Dupree, was born in New Orleans. In fact, he grew up in the same uh, Waifs home where Louis Armstrong first played uh, 
trumpet. Uh, Dupree, however, left New Orleans in the, mm, I guess, 1930s. Uh, was in Chicago, was in New York. Eventually he um, uh, uh, migrated to Europe where he lived throughout the 60s. And he made a you know, really great homecoming. I guess in the early 90s he came back to New Orleans for the first time uh, and, and performed at the Jazz Festival and recorded there. But I want to play a little, just this little opening piece by Jack Dupree, the Rattlesnake Boogie, um, because if you're familiar with, to me, one of, one of my you know, great musical heroes of the 20th century, Professor Longhair from New Orleans, this you can see where that New Orleans piano style comes from, this, this opening riff by Jack Dupree. kind of barrel house style um, that goes back to the you know, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, I mentioned Professor Longhair. Um, you know, a lot of the New Orleans musicians, uh, piano players, were referred to as professor because they actually had some kind of musical training and they gave lessons, uh, things like that. Uh, I, you know, this was a little bit of a struggle for me in terms of the decision. Roosevelt Sykes was not a New Orleans native. Uh, he was born in Arkansas, and he's associated with St. Louis and Chicago. And, but he moved to New Orleans in 1961 and lived there. Matter of fact, Roosevelt Sykes lived and played in New Orleans longer than Jack Dupree ever did. Jack Dupree left as a young man and only came back as a really old man. But um, I also, I, you know, so I kind of struggled because there were other New Orleans musicians that I could have put on the CD. Um, but Roosevelt Sykes was just, an, just a masterful blues piano player. And I also wanted to uh, um, you know, kind of point out with Roosevelt that there is also a tradition of musicians from outside New Orleans that have moved there and become integral to the scene. People like um, uh, you know, Clarence Gatemouth Brown was a Texas guitar player and fiddler that moved to New Orleans. Uh, um, today, I mean, there's a lot of these... Uh, uh, Traditional jazz musicians from Europe, Lars Edegren, Clive Wilson from Britain that moved to New Orleans that have really kept alive the, the traditional old-time old styles. Um, you even have a, 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 it's kind of a strange tradition, but it seems to be thriving of uh, Japanese, uh, you know, guitar hero guys playing uh, Stratocaster guitars a la Jimi Hendrix uh, most notably Jun Yamaguchi, playing with the Mardi Gras Indian tribe. So that's just kind of become a thing where, you know, the Indians want to get, get themselves a hot guitar player, and they have all these Japanese guys down there playing guitar. Yeah, people like Spencer Bowen, uh, Washboard Chaz Leary, um, John, John Cleary, all uh, musicians from outside New Orleans that have uh, moved to the city and become part of the scene. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up my, the presentation part here. And again, I can, we can, if you want to select tracks, we can play some excerpts from them. Or if you have questions, I'll be glad to ask the collections. But, you know, I really see this, this you know, the living legacy. So you have, um, you know, on, 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 on your left here, uh, Ernest, Ernest Rogers and Joe Avery, two of the traditional musicians uh, that, you know, date back to the early part of the 20th century. And then today, someone like Dr. Michael White um, and Greg, Excuse me, Greg Stafford. That was a picture that I took in um, last last spring at the Jazz and Heritage Festival, and that they've you know really kept that 
that tradition alive uh, and thriving in New Orleans. So, uh, you know, um, I'll open the floor for uh, questions, or if you, want, if you all have a, a set list, if you want to um, pick a track, I can play a little bit of the track and um, maybe comment on it or questions about it. Yeah. I um, was at the uh, Fine Arts um, uh, show at the Convention Center, and with your admission, we got a copy of uh, American Crafts, and there was an article on the latest issue about the Indians uh-huh. and lots of photos of them. Um, but it explained in there how they make new costumes every year, and every they usually put like several thousand dollars or more into them. More than them. that now. They're up, some of them are like $10,000 they put into these things. Yeah. You know, and they were explaining you know, how they make their purchases throughout the year of supplies and maybe not pay some few yeah, bills before Mardi Gras to do it. But it's the intent of the lawsuit for monies to come back to the individual Indians yeah. who are photographed or yeah. the group in general. Yeah. Um, and they also, they used to disassemble and redo them each, one of the, you know, one of the Mardi Gras, every year at carnival time I make a new suit, um, and it had to be a whole new design every year. Now some of them wind up selling them to European collectors for museums and things like that. Um, you know, occasionally, I guess if you, there's maybe, you know, little financial issues, you can find some of the pieces of the suits in the, they call them found objects, you know, they're like, junk stores in the French mm. Quarter or antique shops in the French Quarter. and You can buy the patches, um, you know, small patch, five, six hundred dollars, something like that. Yeah, the article also mentioned how uh, Katrina was a big hit. A lot of them, what they were working on was destroyed in the floods. Yeah. So it kind of set them behind for yeah. the following year. Yeah. Thank you very much. Very fascinating presentation. You mentioned earlier at the beginning about the Caribbean West African influence. Was there also influence from Latin America? particularly Mexico, Central America, from the tribal regions? I, I haven't seen a lot on that, but there's really fascinating research on the influence of Haiti, and what's less brought out that might even be stronger influence is the influence of Cuba, um, and the whole French colonial connection in the Caribbean. But with the Haitian Revolution, many, wasn't even Haiti at the time, San Domingue, many of those people went to Cuba, um, and then eventually they were forced out of Cuba, and there was a n- deal negotiated to let them come to New Orleans. And there's a really fascinating book I read uh, last year called The World That Made New Orleans that really talks about the waves of, you know, one thing that's slightly different about the, the Louisiana colony versus the North American, the, the British colonies, is that there's really detailed records of the slave importations um, of names of people uh, from particular tribes, particularly in Senegal and Mali, um, that the French actually, some of the French actually went to Africa looking for specific individuals to capture because they knew of their reputation in terms of of, um, agriculture, in terms of rice, and the whole, you know, really Louisiana would not have survived it hadn't been for the African influence there. Um, So you get these, this book really details the waves of the different African tribal groups as they come in and what influence that has on the rhythms and the culture, the Creole culture, and then how that's interacting with the influence from Haiti and also the influence from Cuba. But there's also cert- certainly there's long-term um, colonial connections with Mexico and New Orleans, too. Sorry, I taught at Tulane for a long time, and I'm a bit familiar with the archive there. There is a I think two pamphlets which deal with the Mexican influence mm-hmm. and the brass into, uh, because during the Mexican Revolution and the 20s, a total conflict, lots of Mexicans came to New Orleans. 
and they really brought the brass, I mean, some of the brass influence. So there is work on that in the archives at, at Tulane, if you're interested. Uh, now, I am a New Orleans. I can tell. You I can tell, see couldn't you? I see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and a lot you said there is, uh, is very real, and I... Uh, and, uh, and I'm proud of how you did it, I mean, with us as far as talking about the second line and the, well, and what you're speaking of, too, when you talked about the other uh, Creole and moving uptown, because the uptown has different parts of uptown. Then you have the seven ward where they were focused at and where the Indians meet at on Claiborne Avenue, mm -hmm. right there at Claiborne and St. Bernard. So they all meet there. And, uh, and, and, and they, they, they have their elaborate costumes. And, of course, Zulu, we all know about the Zulu. But uh, what I miss about it is the, is, uh, the parades and the, uh, from being from home, because by way of Katrina, out from, new, from home. But uh, it's, it's a good thing to be there. And I didn't know, I personally didn't have no idea of how all the city itself, it's like a world in itself. Mm -hmm. The people... The, the attitudes, the uh, personality. It's just like a little different little world right there in Louisiana. And then when it relates to others. And I found out a lot of it by me uh, going through the Katrina thing, moving from Texas, Atlanta, Baltimore, trying to uh, get some establishment. But the thing is, is that uh, I enjoy, it, it is a city, it is a unique city. It is different, but... Uh, it's something that you would enjoy just visiting. And yes, the Mardi Gras is something that you don't see everywhere. And now they have it just on the weekends now. Uh, they don't do it every day yeah. like they used to do now. It's just the weekends now that they're having the parades now. On the, uh, Thank you. Um, I wondered if you could just speak about the remuneration that some of the musicians received either from other people who were investigating or who were... For these recordings? Yeah, not only these, but yeah. those that you may have talked about, because, you know, that's always been one of the worst things that happened to black musicians. Yeah, it's, it's not a pretty picture. You know. Matter of fact, I, I played the Jack Dupree, and uh, I was, I've been working on a, another project, on a book on the blues revival of the 1960s, and I was at Oxford, Mississippi two summers ago going through the archives there, and I found an interview with Jack Dupree, and... Uh, the interviewer was asking him about um, different recordings that he made. And he said, well, what about the Folkways album? He's like, I don't count that one. I never got paid for that one. You know, so it, it's something that, you know, I just did a presentation um, last weekend in, in Baton Rouge at an African-American Studies conference. And, you know, this issue came up again. And it is something that I would like to start to research to see. Even, like, uh, you know, recent recordings that are coming out tapes that were made 30 years ago that are coming out. Is there an effort made to get the remuneration to, to the descendants of the, of the families, yeah. I was just wondering about the selection process for the songs that eventually made it on the CD. How many did you start with? How many rounds did you go through to um, finally get it down to this number? Well, I was, you know, I've been listening to, to the New Orleans music for a long time, so I was very familiar with it. Um, I guess I probably used about 20 folk, original Folkways albums, and then... Um, you know, I just loaded a bunch of them onto my iTunes, and then a lot of it was determined by the repertoire. I was trying, you know, because when the project shifted from the African American Legacy series to this classic series, so then I came up with this title, classic. I mean, it didn't really work as just jazz or most of these other um, 
classic recordings that Smithsonian has are genre-related. And this, this covers a whole lot of genres. So I came up with this classic Sounds of New Orleans title, and then I was like, well, what makes it classic New Orleans? So a lot of the, the repertoire, I wanted to make sure I got St. James Infirmary on there. I wanted to make sure I got Careless Love on there. I wanted to make sure I got Bucket's Got a Hole in it on there. Um, and so that kind of worked with it. And then it was just really kind of a, you know, an ear just what I heard and what worked together. And I actually did, I think, um, four versions of the sequencing um, until I finally got to this one that seemed to, be, to work for me. That, you know, again, I had that idea of the, the actual sequencing also kind of being a narrative that goes from the streets to the church to the, to the different forms of jazz and blues and kind of bracketed by the brass bands. Marching in and marching out was kind of like my idea. Other questions, or anybody want to hear a track, or yes? Sure. Do you have a particular one? You want me to pick one? I'm going to play um, "Careless Love." That one. Next. sake there but that's a you know another talk about classic repertoire so many New Orleans musicians have recorded Karis Love Louis Armstrong Billy and Dee Dee Pierce Fats Domino Dr. John Snooks Eaglin even more recently Harry Connick Jr. Um, and you know it's an interesting song because it almost kind of personifies the the careless love it's almost like he's singing to a person um, other tracks or this is uh you're Eureka Brass Band, Lord, 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 you sure been good to me. Your hanky in the air. (laughs) 
right. Yeah, you're right. Question, how was the spirit of collaboration when you would go, it sounds like you've made several trips down, but did you ever run into any of the musicians who looked at you with little skepticism, like, okay, what does he I, want? I, I've never experienced that. I mean, I think if you come to them with, you know, doing your homework and, and with sincerity, um, I can tell you that I have a friend down there who's a really great jazz drummer, Shannon Powell. He's really, I met him. When he was a teenager, the great Danny Barker introduced me to him. And um, uh, one jazz fest, I went down there, and uh, he, he called me backstage, and we went in his van with all these people I didn't know, and they were kind of like, who's this guy? And his best compliment I ever got, he said, this is my friend Bob here. He's got some ears. He can hear all the way around a Conda. And I said, yeah. <laughs> so I, that, that's the kind of response that I've, I've had in New Orleans. Thank you for your second line performance. <laughs> <laughs>